Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, the Austrian School of Economics, given a new lease of life by Friedrich Hayek in the 70s, gave us such delights as the law of diminishing utility and opportunity cost. And they don't like government involvement in things very much either. So what does Steve Keen think of the Austrian school and how do they differ from the pure neoclassical approach to economics? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast. So the Austrian School of Economics, which dates back to the 1870s, was the school that developed or at least expanded, amongst other things, uh, on the theory of marginal utility and the idea that we as humans always act on a purpose. We're setting out to achieve goals, which is very bad news for marketers trying to encourage us to make an impulse purchase. Uh, But Steve, aren't they sort of like one and the same thing, really? I have a purpose. So I buy things and those things have utility because of that purpose. I mean, it's the, you know, it's it's more or less the same theory all wrapped into one, isn't it? Yeah, and I can actually, I can, I can, not, I'm not looking at the screen at the moment, unfortunately, but I can indeed quote a well-known Austrian economist, actually, who has to say his name is Karl Marx. Mm. And uh, and Marx was, of course, the absolute diametric opposite of the neo of the both the neoclassical and Austrian approaches to economics. But he was quite happy to say that uh, in an exchange, it is quite clear that, that uh, you, one can say an exchange is an activity from which both parties gain. Yeah. Now that that is sort of in some ways the foundation, something which Austrians would agree with, and then think leads to a range of consequences which uh, have a. Uh, libertarian orientation to them, an argument that people, uh, the, the people's action, uh, the, the fact that purposeful action therefore defines what people can do. Um, but the, the, the perspective that Marx led to is say, yeah, completely happy to agree to that, but what matters is the structure in which people make those decisions. Mm. And in that sense, the constraints under which we operate uh, which are the institutions we live in, the time in which these things happen and so on, actually are more important than our capacity to act purposively uh, within those constraints. And, in fact, the constraints themselves may determine what we think is purposeful action. So, All right. so yeah. it's common sense, isn't it, that if you have an exchange, then both parties want to be part of that exchange. Therefore, both parties must be seen to be winning in, in some way. Otherwise, you wouldn't take part in that exchange. But what, what do you mean about this? You know, it depends on the structure of it. Well, the best example is, and in fact, Milton Friedman, who's not an Austrian, of course, but he, uh, he did, did lots of sympathies to Austrians with his books like Free to Choose and stuff like that. Uh, bear, and I've, again, I've got to find the actual page reference, but buried in Free to Choose is the argument that a worker chooses to set the wage because the wage you know, generates a higher marginal product for that person and therefore a higher income than working on using their own facilities. Now that presumes, and it actually is stated at some point and free to choose, again I've got to go back and find the actual point of the reference, mm. but it actually assumes that if you don't get a job, you can work with your own productive resources and produce your own goods. 
In effect, we all live in an economy where we own sufficient means to be able to be productive on our own. Yeah. Therefore, I've, got, I've got my own car plant at the, uh, the end of the garden. Costs me a bit, but uh, I'm just as yeah. productive as the uh, the big car plant down the road. No, you're not. No, 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 no. You're slightly less productive, and therefore you'll go and take a job at the car factory in, in the uh, across the road rather than the car factory in your backyard. But I would. Uh, but the, the car plant, I mean, that makes sense because the car plant of the road had, does have the economies of scale that I don't have. <laughs> yeah, but you, don't have, you haven't got the car plant either. And this is the point. It's presuming that you have a, a, a the choice you make mm. is, in a sense, voluntary as an option between one thing and another thing. This relates to something else we intend talking about soon, opportunity cost. Yeah. Uh, but it's presuming that there's a, there's a gradation. Uh, we can all be peasant farmers and, and provide for our own needs out of our farm, or we can go and work for a wage. And because we go and work for a wage, therefore... Uh, we're doing it because of a higher marginal product, not the fact that we are landless labourers, which was a large part where you know, the dispossession of people from the land, uh, which was what, what they had as both, both rights and obligations in the feudal structure. That process of enclosure and driving people off the land was a large part of generating the industrial workforce of the, the workforce of the Industrial Revolution. And what you therefore get is people making a praxeological free choice in the co-choice where they've got a choice between starving or going and working in uh, in one of those quote-unquote dark satanic mills. Mm. There's the opportunity cost. Uh, <laughs> you mentioned Karl Marx because, of course, you know his theory was that uh, the, the value of, of something was uh, determined by the labour involved in, in producing it, which seems counterintuitive as well, you know, because diamonds are valuable. T-shirts from a sweatshop are, are cheap. Um, you know, it's the, the labour involved in picking up those diamonds is, you know, not going to be that many times greater than the labour involved in, in creating that T-shirt in the sweatshop. Well, I mean, the, the Marx would argue, in fact, that the labour was greater in terms of, uh, of uh, getting the getting the, the minerals the, out of the ground. Um, but the fundamental thing is one one school is saying, and this is the Austrian school of thought, is saying that valuation is subjective. Uh, you, the valuation somebody puts on something reflects the utility they get out of it, and that is unknowable to any other person and incomparable between people. So, and and, and whereas Marx is saying that it comes down to the uh, effort. The effort determines value, and that can be quantified, and the relative prices are based on the degree of effort. Um, now, I think actually both schools are wrong. I'm going to go right back to my energy analysis and in putting a perspective on that. But the Austrian perspective, which is one we're discussing now, uh, fundamentally uh, ends up saying, and, and this is where it ends up having its, uh, what people from the left would see as reactionary attitude, saying you cannot say that Jeff Bezos gets less utility out of an extra dollar than a homeless person does. Mm. Uh, now, in fact, that was um, Gunnar Myrdal made some good points on that front as well and said that uh, an obvious implication of marginal utility theory when it was first developed by J.B. Clark back at the end of the 19th century was that clearly poor people get more utility out of, out of extra money than a rich person does because they're about to die. If, you know, they're, they're on the borderline, in other words. Um, they may starve to death without the extra dollar, whereas the rich person... Um, you know, obviously he's not going to suffer privation by losing that dollar, so therefore there's an argument for redistribution. This, of course, is getting beyond the Austrian perspective. It's more neoclassical. 
in some ways mm. as an argument for redistribution. But the uh, comeback was saying, no, we really cannot say whether or not the subjective value that the billionaire gets from the extra dollar is smaller than the subjective value uh, they get from the um, the poor person gets from the extra dollar. So we don't really know whether we're, we're increasing total utility by taking a dollar off the poor person, the poor person, and giving it to the rich, or vice versa. What we have to do is work out, and this is again very neoclassical. I know the Austrians don't have this concept in their in their uh, repertoire, but it's worth discussing. This is where the whole idea of what's called Pareto optimality came from. Ever heard that piece of jargon? No. Oh, lucky you. The, the what? Okay. The what optimality? Pareto optimality. Right. Now, I've somehow managed to get through my 54 years or whatever it is uh, without that. I don't know how I managed. You're quite a pride man. Okay. Uh, (laughs) This this is an argument from from an Italian engineer turned economist called Vilfredo Pareto. And facing the whole issue of, and this is where a large part of the disputes between schools of economics comes from, of course, whether one should or should not redistribute income uh, from rich to poor or vice versa. Um, given the fact that you can make these sorts of arguments and this sort of angel on the head of pin stuff was a, was, a, was a big deal for the intellectual community back at the end of the 19th century and right through the 20th. And, you know, you can't, you can't compare one person's subjective utility to another person's subjective utility, which is a position that both Austrians and, neo, and neoclassicals are inclined towards. He said, what we need to find is changes which are optimal in the sense that they make no one worse off and at least one person better off. And that's what's called a Pareto optimal change. Now, in that situation, you rule out redistribution from, say, let's take a random rich person, let's say Rupert. This his name is Rupert, mm. just for the heck of it, Rupert, okay? Um, taking a dollar off Rupert and giving it to, let's say, a bloke called Phil, mm. uh, you know, I mean, that uh, would not be a Pareto optimal change and therefore economic theory, which is the neoclassical theory, would say, well, we'd recommend against that sort of non, non-Pareto non optimal change. But if we can find a way that we make Phil $1 better off while Rupert gets no better off, then that's a worthwhile policy to pursue. Right. But that, that is not but, – the, the, but as you're saying, this whole idea of redistribution, that really wasn't – the thinking of the Austrian school, was it? I mean, their marginal utility, weren't they looking at it more from the point of view that if you t- if you, if you have a product which is widely available, then, we, then you're going to get less utility, marginal utility from it than you would from a product which is scarce. Yeah, and scarce. this is where the whole idea of, mar- of valuing things in terms of yeah. marginal utility came from. By the way, we're, we're trashing them a bit here, and I better backtrack a bit and say that a lot of what the Austrian mm. school of thought ends up with uh, is is – is makes sense has wisdom, has wisdom attached to it yeah. and in some ways is you know is comparable to some of the best work of Keynes uh, particularly the Keynes' 1937 paper the general theory of employment I I'm actually have a bit of fun at some stage there's someone I, I know who does a lot of good work on the role of central banks and uh, is is trashing what that person thinks is Keynesian economics uh, I'm going to send that person a copy of the general theory of employment with all references to the authorship removed and ask them who they think actually wrote it. Right. And I'm expecting an answer like Mises or Hayek uh, because if you read it, um, all the stuff about uncertainty, unknowability, uh, which is a fundamental part of the, mar- of the Austrian perspective on the, on the market economy, is there. So it, uh, there, are, there are some good bits to Austrians, and this is why, some reason why a lot of Austrians come saying, why is Keynes not an Austrian economist? Mm. Um, and there's, there's a reason is because there's 
the the sub I, I just re- reject for logical reasons their subjective theory of value um, and and I reject also the perspective this praxeological perspective as they call it praxeology the, the study of human behavior based on the fact that we are all as just to quote Murray Rothbard here on a goal seeking uh, a goal yeah. yeah. Praxeology rests on the fundamental axiom that indiv- indiv- human, individual human beings act, that is, on the primordial fact that individuals engage in conscious actions towards chosen goals. Mm. Now, let's just take this case, a couple of points where that leads to sensible derivations or what I think is off with the fairies derivations. He said, action therefore implies, <clears throat> pardon me, that man does not have omniscient knowledge of the future. For if he had such knowledge, no action of his would make any difference. Now, that's actually reasonably intelligent. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't get to the same, the same way, but that's saying we have uncertainty. No one knows everything. Uh, therefore, you can't presume the existence of a representative agent who does know everything, which is a large part of neoclassical fantasy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but that also leads the next derivation. One of the next derivations is the fact that people act necessarily implies that the means employed are scarce in relation to the desired ends. For if all means were not scarce but superabundant, the ends would already have been attained and there would be no need for action. Now, excuse me. Hang on a second. What's that saying? Saying we're on the road to somewhere, but if, if, if products were plentiful, then we'd already well, be there. If, 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 if things weren't scarce, mm. uh, then we'd already have everything we need. Yeah. And there'd be no point doing anything. We'd just sit back and, and drink those pina coladas on the beach, which I know is a favourite activity of yours. Yeah. Living as you do near the, uh, in both, near the in both cases, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Pina yeah. colada down at Brighton, absolutely. There you go. But I mean, but I mean, yeah, I mean that that's that, that that is crazy. Although it does get back, doesn't it, to this idea that you know if, if something is scarce, we get ma- we get more utility from it. If, if, well, see, if we, this this is where the Austrians lead themselves astray, mm. uh, because what they're fundamentally ending up arguing is that capital, capitalism is characterised by scarcity, mm. uh, and therefore scarcity determines value, and that's mm. that's the overall perspective. Now, uh, one of my absolute favourite economists is a man called Janos Kornai. And Janos Kornai was a, was a socialist economist in Hungary, is still alive and kicking as I learned. <laughs> I've got to give a little Janos Kornai story here because I was, I was in a discussion group back when I was doing my, my master's thesis on, on Marx's theory of value and critiquing the labour theory of value. Uh, I was in a, what's called a Marxism discussion list it's a very, very early precursor of, of, of WeChat, if you like, uh, with a bunch of lefties. And um, and and somebody asked me what's happened to Janos Corner, and I'd read his stuff about twenty years ago. And I said, oh, I haven't. I, I don't know. He may have died. And there was an, an email arrived from Janos Corner to the group, which said, "Reports of my death have been vastly exaggerated." Mm. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> He's still alive and kicking. Just I was asked to write a paper for his Feshref recently. So, very productive man and, and still active well into I think he's into his 80s or 90s now. Anyway, Janos was trying to understand why did why did socialism fail? He didn't have any bullshit about him. He said yes, clearly in, in the competition with capitalism, socialism failed. And he said a lot of people, a bit like Hillary Clinton, blames everything on Russia. Uh, a lot of um, socialists blame everything on Stalin. He said, well, let's imagine a perfectly a, a perfect socialist utopia where there ain't no Stalin, <coughs> pardon me, uh, there aren't no aren't purges, and everything is, is really intended to give the maximum level of benefit to the workers. In that world, you're, you're, everybody has a job, everybody's fully employed, all resources are employed as much as, as possible, and, and you're trying to grow up because a lot of socialist countries, of course, began uh, in a depressed state 
uh, far below the level of output of you know the, the leading capitalist nations at the time. In that situation, in that situation with um, uh, the five-year plan and so on, uh, you you would find yourself not being able to say that any particular sector deserves not to get its full capacity of resources. So you'd allocate everything possible mm. to all sectors. Uh, but if, because you don't have enough productive resources, it means all the sectors are actually resource constrained. And so nobody quite gets what they, they submit need. for yeah. in the five-year plan. Yeah. So consequently, uh, that means that you're, you, you, you get less inputs than you actually need. You're trying to achieve a plan you can't quite reach. Given that situation, the safest thing for you to do is to produce more of last year's model. You don't innovate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, in a capitalist economy, said the different. It's the other way around. You are one of many capitalists competing in a particular market. Let's say it's the car market. There is no such thing as a car. There is a Volvo. There is a Lamborghini, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You compete by product diversification. You get a head start on your competitors by coming up with new models. You're paying workers shit wages, except for if you're Henry Ford. Uh, because you want you want to get as maximum level for the profit profit for the uh, the capitalists, uh, you have extra capacity on hand in case one of your competitors fails. So you and you're also expecting the economy to grow. So when you build a factory, it's only half employed. You want to have that extra fifty percent to grow into, and so on. So fundamentally, the more demand you can get, the more the profit you get for yourself, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You are demand constrained. Now I said, looking at the two worlds, the former will grow slowly. And smoothly but very slowly, the latter will grow in fits and starts, but more quickly and innovate. And clearly, that's what happened. You had, you know, pe- people on on the in West Germany weren't craving East German jeans and East German cars. Uh, it was the desirability of the goods on the other side of the wall that was, you know, as well as getting away from the Stasi, which was a major factor in the success of the West, the, the Western system and the collapse of the Berlin Wall. Um, and so what he, what Janus concluded is that the, the best situation for economy is to be in a situation where there's demand constraint rather than resource constraint. The question is doing this fairly as possible. So how does that bring, it to, how does that bring us back to the, this <coughs> theory of marginal utility then? How does it relate to that? Well, it relates really to the idea that there's means means are scarce. Mm. We live in a world of scarce resources. Yeah. And no, we, no, we don't. We live in a capitalist economy which has excess resources that aren't fully employed because of the demand constraints, and that's what it's a large part of its creative capacity. Right. So what? What's so the utility is due to, so utility has very little to do with uh, with the scarcity of resources in that case. Well, the, 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 what they, not that it has a, has very little to do with it, but the. By trying to interpret everything in a subjective sense, yeah, uh, they end up modelling a world which doesn't exist. Well, you see, I've got resource constraints and and marginal productivity and so on, and, and this they share with the neoclassicals. Because I I thought about this in a world I know. Because as you know, before I was doing this, I was working in the telecommunications world, and I was thinking, how does that apply to this idea of marginal utility? And to me, it's almost like it's happening in reverse there. Because if I build a network, and this gets down to you know the whole economies of scale argument, if I build a network, I've got the core of the network, which has cost me a, a you know a shed load of money, and then I roll uh, fibre broadband down everyone's street i've already paid for the core network but i need to reach more houses so the more fiber i have the more customers i have the greater use or greater utility i'm making from my core network my core network is more valuable to me now the more customers i have so that's not a diminishing marginal utility that's actually the reverse of that isn't it 
Well, it's actually doing, it's actually rising marginal productivity in that sense, and the productivity comes out of the usage. Yeah. There's absolutely no demand. We go back, right back to the beginning of the stuff. There's absolutely no demand for one telephone. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the success of the telephone was you could call one other person. I think what actually happened with the first call out was that Edison made the, the first telephone. He said, come here, so-and-so, I need you. He'd actually spill acid on his hand uh, and, and doing the demo from one room to another. Um, so but, but when a telephone, and actually this is how the telephone was first assessed when it came out, people saying there's no bloody need for this, who are you going to call? The answer ultimately was everybody. Mm. And uh, as, as it expanded, the network effect gave you that growth. So that's a classic case of positive returns to scale and network and network externalities and all these sorts of things. So uh, demand constraint rather than resource constraint, network externalities, economies of scale, then you're describing the real world, and it looks unfortunately nothing like the neoclassical vision mm. or the Austrian of means of scarcity in relation to the desired ends. And of course, related to that scarcity was this idea of uh, opportunity cost, which actually uh, we can take back to uh, time is money. The first person, say, the guy who coined that phrase, was Benjamin Franklin. So it actually goes along back a long way before yeah. even the, yeah. uh, the Austrian school. But you know, the, the the theory, you know, the example is I could sit, you know, that time is money. I could be sitting there watching daytime TV. Uh, the opportunity cost of uh, getting a job and making some money uh so but which is actually not bad just thinking opportunity cost sounds like a daytime tv show doesn't it? maybe we should uh, maybe we could do something with that but come on down it's opportunity cost with steve keen and phil dobby um but yeah so i'll just so the idea of opportunity cost i mean that's a fairly straight i mean that was pretty much associated with the austrian school that's a pretty basic concept it's it's hard to pull that apart isn't it uh, yes, yeah, as long as you're restraining it to one person, because mm, and, right. and this is where it goes goes wrong. It's one of these micro concepts that applied at the macro level when the conditions for it to be applied do not apply in the real world. And that that is that opportunity cost definitely applies in terms of what you spend with your day. If you sleep for eight hours, by definition, the opportunity cost of sleeping eight hours is you can only be a conscious for 16. Mm. If you sleep for 10 it's 14. It's, this, this, there's a very direct constraint in that, which is called the day, uh, you know, the 24 hours. And, the, and, we, and we, we think of it in those terms, and yes, it makes sense, and then we extrapolate that to the collective level. And what the, the way the neoclassicals did, of course, is mathematical and technical. The Austrians do it in a more verbal way, and that this is where they're, they're uh, generally speaking, uh, this is particularly to Rothbard and Mises rather than to Hayek, they're anti-mathematics. So you can't use mathematical logic here. Of course, the neoclassicals put it in a mathematical guise. And what they draw, and that everything they do is a drawing, not a not a, a not a, a, a functional representation of reality. They will draw uh, this nice curve, uh, which they call the production possibility frontier, which lies between two goods, let's say guns and butter, guns on the vertical axis, butter on the horizontal. And uh, they say that if you want to produce more butter, you have to produce less guns if you're on the production possibility frontier. And therefore, the opportunity cost of one gun might be, say, you know, depending on the level of production, uh, t- uh, t- two tonnes of butter. If we're talking uh, in, a, in a country with, uh, with, uh, with, with uh, lo- you know, not much butter and lots of guns, and the op- opposite direction, you'd end up saying that the cost of uh, one gun might be one, one pound of butter, and the opportunity cost is much higher given the, the where you are in this production possibility frontier. But the production possibility frontier presumes everybody and every machine is fully employed producing both guns and butter. 
and therefore produce more butter, you've got to use one of your gun machines to make butter instead of guns. Mm. Let that one sink in for a moment. Yep. Um, well, I, I was thinking, actually, you use your guns to shoot the people buying butter, so you need less butter and more guns, uh, but not good for population. That's the way I'm well, maybe good. It depends on your Let's not get you know, our subjective utility get in the way of this logical argument. <laughs> uh, but but, but that, that is the sort of um, thinking mm. that goes on. And but even neoclassicals, when they explain this constraint, they'll say that if you are inside the production possibility frontier, in other words, you don't have fully employed resources, you have some machines and some workers which are, which are idle in some sense or other, then it is possible to have more guns and more butter simultaneously, and therefore opportunity cost does not apply. Now, even neoclassicals can reach that outcome, and that's why I find it ridiculous that anybody can start any argument uh, from a, and see themselves as a progressive economist, beginning from the idea that opportunity cost is undebatable. It is debatable. It's something at the at the individual level, yes, there are 24 hours in a day. Yes, an hour I spend talking to Phil Dobby doing two podcasts uh, is an hour that I can't spend... Having lunch. ...what other people do after that. Um, but it, it, that only applies if you have the situation of full employment. Now, by definition, if we're talking about the current state of a capitalist economy... Uh, as it defines as 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 full employment is defined, we're way below that. So there's no opportunity cost at the macro level. You can, if you have more people being employed, uh, you are not sacrificing one good for the sake of another. Yeah. So opportunity cost doesn't apply there. And indeed, if you talk in terms of trade, um, uh, you you have unemployed resources. You have not just unemployed labour, but you also have machines which are idle to some extent, because factories are built with excess capacity. Uh, in that situation, you cannot use an opportunity cost argument. So, um, but again, this again, back to the, the Austrian schools we're talking about, then that, that type of world in which you are, uh, except for the impact of government intervention, you would be on the production possibility curve or near to it. That's when their logical concepts apply. So what is the di- what is the difference then between the Austrian school and neoclassic economics i know i know hayek for example wasn't a big support of this idea of equilibrium that sits with neoclassic yeah, and here's again where i kind of say i have a lot of time for austrians and they wonder why i haven't got as much time back for them uh well, they, 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 they wonder why i'm not part of their school sometimes and that is their anti the idea of equilibrium and so am i i think equilibrium is an intellectual uh weakness showing a, 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 an, an un, unwillingness to, well, initially showing a, a belief which was technically true, that it was very difficult to model the world uh, in the true disequilibrium which it actually exists. Mm. And therefore, uh, there are two ways you can go. One way you can say, well, let's not even try to do the mathematics. And that was fundamentally the Austrian direction. The neoclassical way was to say let's assume we're in equilibrium and do the mathematics and then at a later stage lead it to our successors to do the non-equilibrium work which is quite literally not not quite in those words but quite literally what uh, um, jb clark who developed the, the neoclassical developed the marginal productivity theory of income distribution quite literally what he said in the paper and written in 1898 about the future of economic theory and he said the great uh, uh, heroic is the assumption of a st- static equilibrium uh, world. Uh, the true work of the 20th century is going to be restating what we know working from statics in the world of dynamics. And that was completely wrong. Uh, that is not at all what neoclassicals did. They, ca- they got obsessed with this equilibrium thing and they still shoehorn everything into equilibrium. Whereas the Austrians uh, say, no, you, you, this, the, the strength of capitalism 
metabolism comes from how it reacts to disequilibrium. Yeah, so which, is really, which relates to information. So, I mean, we've neoclassics, so, you know, that, and I sort of remember, you know, textbook economics that I was being taught, you know, from A-level was all about, yes, we, you know, it, this is all assuming Everyone has access to this, to this, to all the information, including you know your point that you've made time and time again about uh, the way the future is going to be. Whereas I think Hayek, you know, at least appreciated that information wasn't available equally to all. Some people would have less than others. Some would have incorrect information. Error is going to occur, and that's actually what creates opportunities in the economy. So entrepreneurs can step in and make money from. Yeah, and, uh, and that's from- a very valid perception of capitalism, and something which Schumpeter, who's the Austrian, nobody wants to admit as an Austrian. Uh, handled magnificently uh, in talking about creative destruction and the actual process of booms and busts in a capitalist economy. So that side of Austrian thinking I have complete time for. I just think they haven't ac- haven't uh, accessed it properly. What the neoclassicals have done is say, and this this is this is what Keynesum also uh, ends up sounding like an Austrian when when he when he comments on these sorts of issues. Uh, the, the neoclassical solution is let's assume let's make a simplification. Simplifying assumption, perfect information. And poor bloody victims of a first-year economics degree copped this in their introductory lectures. Let's assume perfect information, meaning everybody knows everything about everybody else. Mm. Um, well, the, the, the Austrian point is, and then they think they're modelling a market. What they're actually modelling is, is the behaviour of gods. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> but what the Austrians say is, well, the beauty of the marketplace is people have limited information and the market uh, is, a, is the best mechanism humans have so far invented to combine this uh, patches of information we all have to reach an outcome uh, which is roughly, uh, they wouldn't use the, op- I don't want to use the word optimal, but, but better than yeah, any other it. system in yes, working out of what the allocation should be. Yeah, things move forward with it. We get the best yeah, allocation yeah. of resources and the like. But, I mean, fundamentally, though, I mean, one thing they are the same as, uh, you know, classic economists with is that, that you know people like Hayek believed fundamentally as in the free market as you know as we've just described that pr- the prices find their mm. level based on the, the market system and no other system particularly socialism is as efficient as all of that so I mean that their belief was uh, like near classic econ- economists government should butt out basically as far as possible yeah, yeah, and this is again was the attitude they had towards the Great Depression that so uh, we have to let the, the deflationary impact run through, and then uh, the market will sort everything out. Hmm. And this is where one of the main weaknesses that I see in the Austrian theory of trade cycles, because they believe that there is an interest rate which will uh, they call the natural rate of interest is part of Austrian thinking, part of neoclassical thinking as well. That there's some rate which will bring you in this into equivalence. Of, um, the, the demand for savings and the supply of savings, uh, the demand for savings coming from people who wish to invest, the supply coming from those who wish to save and get a return. And if we let that market rate occur, then we're going to have not perfect equilibrium in the investment market, which the neoclassicals would go on about, but we're going to be close to that equilibrium uh, and then the, the slight deviations will give entrepreneurs chances to innovate and so on. And the boom and bust cycle will wipe out the excess of, uh, of, of malinvestment that occurred beforehand, um, but they believe if you let the market do it, you you wouldn't have those booms and busts. And you, that, that is, there's actually a wonderful, I don't know how many people have seen it, quite a, quite a few, but the, high, high, the Keynes-Hayek rap done back, uh, professionally produced back, I think, about... 2010, where you had two rap artists uh, doing a, a standoff between Keynes and Hayek, and 
and, and the Hayekens talk about the boom and bust cycle and fundamentally blame the boom on the interest rate being set by the Federal Reserve and set too low, leading to excesses of investment, which has to fail, and therefore you're going to have slumped down again. And the best thing is to get the government out of the way and let the market set the interest rate. And they're also completely against the government creating demand. Mm. Interestingly, Austria today, government spending is 50% of GDP, which is more than the UK or the USA. So they seem to be ignoring their economic forebears in Austria. Well, Austrian is a case of the origins rather than the beliefs. So uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the Austrian, Austrian economists have invaded America, uh, but a lot of them were refugees from Nazism um, and, uh, and, then, and, you know, and, and moved to America. So, and that's where mm. Rothbard come from. So Mises, Hayek, uh, um, Menger, Bombay work, et cetera, et cetera, were the, the, the initial scale of influence. But these days, yeah, uh, Austrian economics is based in the United States of Austria. I mean, America. Right. Two, <laughs> two, uh, not that past you almost. Two, two quick points. Nothing gets past me. Two quick points. Uh, then to finish with, uh, if you're, seeming as the Austrian school seems to think, you know, Steve Keane should, he should be part of us. He's almost one of us, but he disagrees on a few fundamental things. If you were to join them and say, well, okay, I'll join you, but it's got to be the new Austrian school of economics. You can take away two things and add two things. What would you take away and what would you keep? Subjective theory of value mm. uh, and, and belief that uh, the economy is near equilibrium. Okay. I'm all- and I'd add an objective theory of value and the understanding that it's far from equilibrium. Now, uh, actually, I saw, had somebody sign up to Patreon recently who uh, made a comment about one of my models being something you get out of any neoclassical, uh, the allocation's got to be in a neoclassical model. And I wrote back to him saying that uh, if, neo, if neoclassicals uh, could accept uh, that debt was a fundamental part of economics and that uh, you could have uh, an unstable equilibrium, uh, then I'd be a neoclassical. And so, in other words, it's fundamental beliefs that if you get rid of it, you're no longer Austrian or neoclassical in the first place. Right, we'll leave it on that note. Look, we are going to talk a bit more about uh, opportunity costs next time, but when it relates to uh, modern monetary theory, I guess, and and, uh, this is going to be a meaty one next time. I'm looking forward to this. Modern monetary theory and international trade. I want to find out whether MMT really only exists in a a closed system. Uh, So we'll talk about that's going to be fun, isn't it? We'll talk about that next time. Thanks, Steve. Welcome. With the warning that next week's uh, podcast might upset a few mainstream modern monetary theorists. For the rest of us, if you don't know what MMT is, uh, we'll explain it all and where the weaknesses may lie. That's next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening to it today. Uh, we'll catch you next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.